I love the Bible, and that's the understatement of my life. And there's a reason why I love the Bible and why I hate religion. Because the problem with religion is religion tells me about how to pursue God. But when I open the pages of this book, I read about a God who's pursuing me. When I, when I hear religion, I hear jump through these hoops and you can appease God. When I open the pages of the Bible, I discover a God who loves me unconditionally and desires to connect with me. That's why I love the Bible so much. And guys, I want you to know that I'm well cognizant of the fact that a lot of you don't drive halfway across this state to hear anything that I've got to say. I'm just not that important. And, and my ideas about life are just not important enough. You come because you want to hear what God has to say about things. And so for that reason, this book is very, very important. In a sense, I'm almost like a lawyer. I had, a, had an attorney friend who came here who was agnostic when he first came to New Spring, but he said, you don't give sermons, you give closing arguments. And, and, and I don't, I'm, I'm sure I really don't. He was just being kind to me. But, but in a sense, I, I do something similar to a lawyer in the sense that I have to cite, I have to cite the law. I have to cite precedent. And so my, my law and my precedent comes from the Word of God and stories that corroborate God's Word. And so for that purpose today, I want us to talk about a message that we find throughout the Bible. You know, I, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but one of the problems that we have in postmodern America is that most people know just enough of the Bible to be dangerous. They just got a little bit here and a little bit there, and they picked up a little in church and a little in religion, and, and sometimes they'll even quote things in the Bible that aren't even in the Bible. But what you should understand is the Bible has several messages that are just, they, they take up huge portions of the Bible. And for that reason, those are what I call, and I call those the main highways of the Bible. And at New Spring, I don't ever veer off and get off into a lot of the little side issues of religion that don't make a lot of difference. I don't get off into the periphery very much. I want to stay on the main highways of things that God repeats and repeats and repeats and are so challenging for us to, to wrap our arms around. And if you have read the Bible or if you've even cut into the Bible in any place, you will discover what I've discovered, that a big portion of the Bible is a running tension. There is a running tension in the Old Testament and specifically in the New Testament, a running tension between law and grace. You'll find it in the Old Testament, but I think it is pretty much what the book, my, my think the most important book in the Bible, Romans, it is what the book of Romans is about. It is what Galatians is, is about. It, it, it permeates Ephesians and even the book of James. Over and over throughout the Bible, you have this tension between law and grace. And if we are going to understand grace, what it is, I mean, last week we saw that the very essence of grace is that God provides what he requires. His requirements are, are perfection, and yet he turns around and supplies what he requires. Well, we had a starting point last week, but I think right now we need to move into this dialogue, this debate between law and grace and understand what it's all about so that we can resolve it personally in our own minds because this isn't about theology. And this is the thing that I've worried about and prayed about a lot getting ready for this message because I know postmodern America, which I'm part of, you know, we can listen to this message and say, is it, does it really matter? I mean, you know, I've got bills to pay. I'm looking for a job. I'm struggling in my relationships. My kids won't listen to me, or my parents won't listen to me, whichever one. I mean, it, all the stuff that we deal with, a question like law and grace, can it matter? And, and could I just tell you, this is what I thought about when I asked that question. It's so important. Does anything else matter? Really? Because here's the deal. Five seconds after we leave this life, we're going somewhere forever. And so here's the deal. We wind up in the wrong place forever. Does it matter what kind of car I drove? Does it matter where I went to college? Does it matter how much money I made? 
I mean, even the big things in life, do they matter if at the end of my life I wind up in the wrong place for eternity? So it's so huge that I feel like it's important for us to spend our weekend today dealing with this long grace. Now I want to take you to a story in the Bible, in the Gospel of John. This is an interesting story because, you see, it's so, it's so out there and so challenging that there were centuries where the leaders of churches didn't even want to read this story to their congregations because they were afraid people would hear it and go the wrong direction. And it got to the place where it began to be left out of copies of the Bible because this story is so challenging. And in this thing of law and grace, I want to go straight to that story this morning. It is in John chapter 8, and the Bible tells us that Jesus was teaching, and we know that he was teaching in a part of the temple called the Court of Women. And while he was teaching, the Bible says the teachers of the law. Well, there's a word. The teachers of the law. These were not just people clearly who had studied the law. They weren't people who had mastered the law. They were the ones who were the teachers of the law. They were the ones who told the public at large what the law said. And while Jesus is teaching in the court of women, the teachers of the law show up. They are not friends of Jesus. But they show up, and they bring a woman caught in adultery. And they, I, I have this emphasized in my notes. They made her stand before the group. In the temple, in the court of women, Jesus is teaching. There's a crowd. In come the teachers of the law, bringing a woman scantily clad if she has anything on at all. They've just pulled her from an encounter with a man. And they bring her and they stand her up before the entire group. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says stoner. What do you say? Now, right now, there's so many parts of the story that we could get tangled up with. We could think about Jesus' teaching. We could think about these teachers of the law and what their ultimate motive was. But I am brought to, my attention is focused on the woman. Because I see her there standing before Jesus. She is, I mean, I see her head down. She's barely covered up, if at all. She's ashamed. She's in trouble. They're talking about killing her. And here's the deal. She's done something seriously wrong. She's broken her marriage vows, and it wasn't something that happened years ago. She was in the very act of breaking her marriage vows, and then 21st century Americans, she was caught. You know, we have a hard time with this one, don't we? Let's just unscrew the halos for a few minutes. You're driving down the highway, you know, and you're not paying attention, and one of Wichita's finest, or Sedgwick County finest, pull you over, and you say, I wasn't speeding. No, no, I'm going to fight this thing. Really? See, we live in, I mean, I, I've done counseling, I don't do counseling much anymore, but I mean, I have known people were doing things that were wrong, and I would ask them, are you doing this? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I'm not cheating on my wife. No, I'm, I'm not cheating on my husband. And then you, you present, hey, this is how I know about it. And it's like, well, yeah, okay. See, that's the deal about being caught. You know, if, if, you're, if you're doing something that happened a long time ago, you can forget it. If you're in the act, but you're not caught, well, if you didn't see it, it didn't happen. But if you're, if you're caught, that's why my attention is on this poor woman. I mean, she's head down, barely covered up. She's ashamed. She's in trouble. She's broken her marriage vow. She was in the very act and caught, and they bring her, and they stand her before Jesus. 
These are people who knew the law. These are people who claimed to follow it. By the way, you know how I know they claimed to follow it? Because they didn't turn themselves in. They turned her in. So they must have said, hey, we're turning her in because we feel like we are right there. We're square. We're thick with the law. I don't know how many of you are leaders like myself, and you, you have to make decisions every day of your life. But if you are, then you can sync up with me on this. Missing here is a range of options. If I got a big decision to make, like Jesus is, is, is confronted with a decision, what do you say? What do you do? If I'm a leader, I like to know what my range of options are. And so in Jesus' case, there was no range of options. The teachers of the law said, the law just says one thing. The law says stoner. It's not like you can stone her. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. Give her probation. You can give her community service. You can send her to jail. I mean, they, they didn't give him a list of options. They said, the law says stoner. And it did. You can read it with me in Leviticus 20, verse 10. The Bible says, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. This is a side note, but where was the man? Ladies, not much has changed in 2,000 years, right? This is, these were men who brought this woman to Jesus. Conveniently, they didn't bring the guy. They bring the poor woman. But here is the one thing that we're all clear on now, whether you're Jesus or whether you're the, the teachers of the law or whether you're people sitting in church at New Spring in, in, in February of 2013. The question is, what is the law? What is it? What is this impersonal law thing that could be so powerful that it could say without question, this woman must die? Well, just to give you a broad cross-section definition of what the law is, the law simply was, in this case, the rules God gave about life and behavior. And there were 10 that it all started with. You, not, you probably know them as the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. But these were the 10 basic laws that God gave the Israelite nation. The first command, you know them. God comes first. Number two, no idols. Number three, no misuse of God's name. Number four, reserve one day a week and rest. And number five, have respect for your parents. Number six is have respect for human life. Don't murder. Number seven is sexist for marriage. Number eight is respect other people's property. Don't steal. Number nine is tell the truth. And number 10 means don't even covet what belongs to your neighbor. We all know the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. But that wasn't all of the law. Because after all, I mean, these guys were teachers of the law. Clearly, they didn't have to memorize Ten Commandments and then tell everybody what the Ten Commandments were. There were more. The, this, the law was extrapolated into 613 precepts. Let me get this right. 248 were affirmative. 365 were negative. That means there was a thou shalt not for every day of the year. Well, I'm not going to give you all 613 because, frankly, I don't know them. But that isn't the point, is it? I mean, I don't know what those 248 thou shalt's were. I don't know what the 365 thou shalt nots were. I'm not, I'm not sure. I've probably read them all at one time or another as I've read through the Bible. I don't know what they were. One thing I do know is I know where the law put this woman. It backed her in a corner. These guys said the law says stoner, and it did. I mean, stoning in those days was pushing a person off a cliff and then rolling a boulder onto them, and if they were still alive, they threw rocks until they died. I know what stoning her is, and yes, the law said stoner, but that was just for starters. And stoning was the least of her problems. Because here is the deal, and for all of us, this is why this is so important for us today. Five seconds after we die, we're going to be somewhere. 
You're not going to just be put in the ground. You're not going to become an angel. You are going to be you. you. You are right now who you are going to be throughout eternity. I am Mark Hoover. I will be Mark Hoover five seconds after I die. I won't even know I died because the Bible is so clear on this. The part of you that is alert, that is cognitive, that makes decisions, that loves, that part of you that is your soul and spirit is going to live forever. You'll get a new body that's eternal when you get to your eternal destination. But here's the deal. You and I are going to live somewhere forever. And the problem with this poor woman with stoning was just her exit door. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, the Bible says, but the immoral, in a list with a lot of other stuff, but the immoral, their fate is the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That's a term for hell. It's at this moment without, hopefully, the risk of being confrontational, I want to ask you a question. How do you fare up against the law? How do you fare against the law? I guess I'm, it's just an, I'm an aging baby boomer. I can't help myself. In the back of my mind, I'm hearing a song as I ask that question. The song is, I fought the law and the law won. Because that's how I feel. I mean, and here's the thing. Again, somebody could say, Mark, I'm not really sure this matters. Does anything else really matter? And somebody could say, well, here's the thing, Mark. I'm not worried about stacking up against the law because I've never done what that woman has done. Kudos, and I mean that from the depths of my heart. In this immoral age that you and I live in, if you've been true to your marriage vows, you're a special person. But you and I need to hear something else. In the book of James chapter 2, verse 10, the Bible says, For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. Did you hear that? Let me read that one more time so we don't miss it. The person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. Well, now I know how I stack up against the law. I'm not just dead. I'm so dead. I'm a thousand kinds of dead. Because the first command is to honor God above everything else. My word, I haven't done that one day of my whole life. Before it ever gets to, you know, dishonoring parents and telling the truth and not stealing and being morally pure and all those things, before it ever gets there, I'm dead at number one. We need to stop right now. And guys, this is so important. This is what most people miss. This is what is wrong with religion. This is why people who even come to churches like ours walk out puzzled and not really understanding God. And this is this. Why did God give the law in the first place? If the law is going to back us all into a corner and the law is going to condemn us all, why did God give the law? And it all comes down to this. God had a purpose in giving the law, but human beings didn't understand God's purpose. They misunderstood God's purpose in giving the law. They assigned it a different purpose, and that's what's got us all screwed up. So why did God give us the law? All right, what's the name of the show? Law and Order. That is the reason why God gave us the law. This is a disordered world. So God gave us the laws to help us have peace and security and if you look at these 613 laws, they, they were laws for cleanliness because before we knew about microbes, I mean, clearly, if you look at the laws that God gave for cleanliness, it would have, they would have avoided so many diseases. His dietary laws were so they would be healthy. You know, you can just imagine what a wonderful world this would be like if everybody observed God's laws. We would live longer. Our health costs would be lower. You could leave your doors open. Now, you wouldn't have to lock your car doors. I mean, we would be at peace and security. There wouldn't be racial issues and all these kinds of things if we observed God's law. God gave laws to us for order. And we, we break those laws, and then we have problems. 
There's an extreme case of this. I don't know how many of you pay attention to this. My executive pastor, Billy Poor, told me a story. I'd actually seen this restaurant on a television show earlier, but there's a restaurant called, in Las Vegas called the Heart Attack Grill. Anybody keeping up with this story? I mean, the, the owner of this restaurant, he decided that he was going to start a restaurant with, quote, nutritional pornography. In other words, just the worst possible kind of food you could eat. And, and so when you, it's got a hospital theme, and, and you know, it's, there's a warning outside the door. It says this, this restaurant is, is dangerous to your health. They have a sign that's on the door that says no checks because you may die before your check clears. <laughs> and, and people who go into this restaurant are called patients. And your order is like put on a little plastic band and put on your wrist. They have single, double, triple, quadruple bypass hamburgers. The quadruple bypass hamburger has 9,000 calories. The buns are soaked in lard. There are four patties of beef, eight slices of cheese. And the thing about it is, I mean, the whole idea is the most unhealthy kind of food. They have butterfat milkshakes, flatliner fries. The only deal is the second person died after going there last week. Now, you and I are not surprised at that. But it's what the man said, the owner, it's what he said afterward that, that stands out to me because here's the thing. That's an extreme, bizarre case of breaking reasonable law. But what he had to say sounds a lot like I hear people say, what I hear people say every day when they flip God off. Listen to what he said. First of all, he just said, hey, it was a wake-up call, but it won't stop what they're doing. I'm going to quote now from the owner. The grill... It's where you can be yourself. We accept people as they are. Oh, doesn't that sound nice? See, that's the thing. See, our ears are tuned for that. In other words, you can do anything we, you want to do because we accept people as they are. Well, wait a minute. Accepting people as they are is not tantamount to saying you can flip God off. I mean, accepting me as I am doesn't mean that I can eat 9,000 calorie hamburgers. It ain't going to affect my health. See? We need to dial this in. But he said, we accept people as they are. He said, this man's death isn't going to stop us for what, from what we're doing. People, and this really, I mean, kind of gave me a, a morbid laugh, gallows humor here. People have got to live their lives. Sounds like they're dying to me. <laughs> so you know, we need to understand today that God's purpose for giving the law was for health and order and peace and security. But here's what happened when people begin to hear God's law. I believe in every one of us there is an understanding that we're broken. I mean, you just cannot convince me otherwise. I know I'm broken. I'm guessing you know you're broken. There's just something within us that makes right harder to do than wrong. There's something within us that when we desire to do right, we still have a hard time. We know we're broken. Now, if you open the pages of the Bible, you don't have to go very far before the Bible tells us that our first parents sinned and we inherited the disease. But I'm thinking every one of us knows that we're broken. And the problem was when people heard about God's law, they said, oh, God's law is the way, the way home. It is the way to be right again. It is the way to be redeemed. By the way, that word redeem is an interesting word, and you find it throughout the Bible. Redeem, redeemer, redemption. Do you know what that means? I'm going to do my best to give you the best definition of what it means to redeem because many of us have been in church all our lives and we've gotten these churchy definitions. Let me just give you a simple definition. Redeem means to pay the price to bring something out of jeopardy or someone. 
It means there's some kind of money price that has to be paid. There's some kind of sacrifice that has to be made. There's something that has to be done in order to retrieve an object or a person who is in jeopardy. Some of you in the old days used to pawn stuff. You know that you got a pawn ticket. In order to redeem what was pawned, you had to bring the money plus whatever fee was associated with it. And when you brought that price back, then you got the object back that you had put in jeopardy. In the Civil War, if you were on the Union side, you could pay $300 and your son would not have to go fight in the army. In the days of slavery, there were noble people who went to slave auctions and bid on a slave and paid the price of a slave in order to set that slave free. That is redemption. It means a, a price must be paid to bring something or, or someone out of jeopardy. And so there were people who, when they heard the law of God, they said, and this is still part of religion today, there are people who said, okay, God gave me the law so that I can buy myself out of jeopardy and make myself right. I can redeem myself. Is that what you and I think? Is that, is that how we think? Careful is tricky. Because if I ask you today if you're going to heaven and you say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person, then you... You bought into that. You've said, my conduct has bought me out of jeopardy. I think I'm a pretty good person. Or one of the things that we, we so are unhappy with churches and religion is, is about is, is hypocrites. These are people that either pretend to be something that they're not, as if they have gotten themselves redeemed by what they pretend to be. Or more importantly, how many of us have watched religious people kind of set up a system on the own where the things that they do are not so bad and the things that other people do are bad. It's like shooting an arrow at a fence and then drawing a target around it. Or, you know, someone could say, well, I'm better than average. I mean, I'm not Bin Laden. I may not be perfect. Well, that's news. Your wife knows that, I assure you. You don't even have to say it. I may, not, I may not be perfect, but I'm, I'm, not, and I'm better than my brother-in-law, or I'm better than people that I work with. Or one that's so popular today is, I just don't think what I do is wrong. Well, that's, if you don't think what you do is wrong, then you're saying, I'm not so bad, and so whatever God is going to do at the end, I'm sure I'll get in somehow. Guys, here's the thing. The misunderstanding is what the law was given for. God gave the law for order. God gave the law for security. He gave the law for health. He didn't give the law to redeem us. No place in the Bible. You cannot find a place in this Bible where Scripture says that the laws that God gave, be it 10 or 613, you can't find a place where in the Bible Scripture says the law will make you right with God. In fact, the Bible says over and over and over and over the very opposite. Let me cherry pick. Galatians 2, verse 16, no one will ever be made right by obeying the law. Did you know it was in the Bible? Well, I thought good little girls went to heaven, bad little girls went to hell. Well, wait a minute. Did, did you just read what I read? No one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. That is Galatians 2, verse 16. Romans 3, 19 extends that. For the law's purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And that's certainly my experience with it. 
Now, just in case anybody's here, because it could be somebody, and I've heard this in religion before. Well, I think the law is bad. I just don't think the Bible is a book of rules. Well, it is a book of rules. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with the law. I mean, the law is good. I mean, when I get on my Hyundai and I get out here on the, the expressway and the speed limit sign is 65, there's nothing wrong with that speed limit sign. Unfortunately, there are times when there's something wrong going on in my car. There's nothing wrong with the speed limit law. It's fine. See, that's what the Bible says here. The trouble is not with the law, for it's spiritual and good. Paul is writing here, the trouble is with me, for I'm too human. I'm a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Now, I just want to take a moment, because every once in a while, somebody's going to sit out and hear a message like this and say, well, I just don't know if I can accept what Mark is saying, because I think if you just accepted grace like this, you could just live any way you want to. I think that's what Mark is doing. He's just giving license to sin. No, you don't understand. This is for people who know they're broken. This is for people who want to be made right. This is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. This is for people who know they're broken like Paul. Did you hear what he said? I hate what I do. I mean, Paul is saying, I want to do what is right, but I just keep doing wrong. I hate what I do. I want to do right. I'm going to do something at New Spring that I almost never do. In fact, I can't remember having having done it in the last 10 years. Guys, as I said at the beginning of this talk, I try to keep things on the main highway. I just try to tell you what God says. And there are times when I'll give you prophecies out of the Bible, like especially when we get close to Christmas, and I'll tell you about all the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. Because see, the Old, New, Old Testament and the New Testament have a symmetry. The message of the Old Testament is saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The New Testament says he's here, he's here, he's here, he came. It's all about God sending us a redeemer. So I will tell you those prophecies from time to time. You know, Genesis 3.15, born of a woman. Genesis uh, 49.10, from the tribe of Judah. Numbers 24.17, a star is associated with his birth. Micah 5.2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14, he's going to be born of a virgin. Psalm 22, he's going to be crucified. I, I give you those prophecies, but here's one thing I almost never do. Because not only do you have prophecies in the Old Testament telling us that Jesus is coming, you have books that are rich with symbolism. And there's unescapable symbols of Christ in the Old Testament. And perhaps, at least in my point of view, the most symbolic Old Testament book is a four-chapter book in the Old Testament named Ruth. And if you were here in December, I actually did a talk on Ruth and tell you the story. And I remember thinking, boy, when I get into grace, I'm going to go back here. Because for a few moments, I want to take you to the book of Ruth, and I want us to look at some of these symbols, because in the book of Ruth, we find ourselves, we find Jesus, and we find the law. Let me give you a little background real fast in case you weren't here in that series. Ruth lived in Moab. She grew up in one of the worst places you could live. The Moabites were completely debauched sexually. They, they, they were engaged in every kind of unimaginable sex. And then on top of that, they, they, the God that they worship, they actually burned their babies alive as a sacrifice to their God. Ruth would have never known anything about the true God except for the fact that there was a family who lived in Bethlehem and there was a drought and a famine going on. And so this family who lived in Bethlehem decided to move away from Bethlehem and move to Moab. And, and this family who moved to Moab, they had two sons. And one of the two sons married while he was in Moab and he married Ruth and his brother married another gal. 
But in time, the man died and both sons died. So you had a woman, Naomi, the mother, and you got two daughter-in-laws, and they're all widows. And Naomi says upon a point to the girls, I don't have anything, I'm, I'm broke, I don't have anything, I'm, not, I'm too old to have sons, don't wait around, I can't have any more sons, I'm going back to Bethlehem, you gals go back to Moab. And one of her daughters-in-law decided to do it. But Ruth, whom the book is named after, says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going with you. Now, Ruth is a picture of us. Ruth is a picture of the church. Because she is Gentile, but she is married into the family of Israel. And she goes back to Bethlehem with, with Naomi, but these are two broke women. They have no way to make a living. As I shared with you the other day, there was a law called the law of gleaning, so that rich people who had massive fields, they were not to harvest the corners of their fields, and if grain stalks fell, they were to leave them there for poor people to come. And so Ruth was told by her mother-in-law about this process, and so she wandered in, of all things, to the field of a guy named Boaz, a single man who was a wonderfully kind man but who never got married. Boaz is a picture of Jesus. And Boaz is smitten with Ruth. He is knocked head over heels with Ruth, and he's in love with her, and he is doing kind things for her, all proper. But anyway, Naomi, Ruth tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, and here's the point that I want to get to because we've asked the question, what is a redeemer? What is the law? What does it mean to be redeemed? Naomi tells Ruth, we have a law here in Israel called the law of the kinsman redeemer, or in Hebrew, the goel. And what that means is, if a woman loses her husband, the closest male relative can redeem her and marry her and raise up an inheritance to the dead man and also raise up a family to the dead man if the woman and if the man so choose. And so Naomi said to Ruth, you don't realize this, but you have happened to wander into a man who is qualified to redeem you. He is a man who is qualified to marry you. He is certainly smitten with her. And so Naomi explains to Ruth the cultural way a woman could say to the man, well, this is kind of a cool thing when you think about it, ladies, you don't have to wait for the man to say it. Ruth could say it. Ruth could say to him, I want to be redeemed. Now, are you starting to see the picture of this? Ruth is you and me. Boaz is a picture of Jesus. And Boaz is a redeemer, and Ruth is basically going to Boaz and saying, I wish to be redeemed. But Boaz now tells Ruth something is very important. He is saying, there is a kinsman who is closer to you than I am, and by rights, he should get the first opportunity. Well, the closer kinsman is the law, because clearly we are more related to the law than we are to Jesus. He is perfect, and we are not. And so here's what Boaz says to Ruth, and I hope you hear this today. Boaz says to her, if he is willing to redeem you, Jesus is saying, look, if the law is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Do you hear the, do you hear that decision in Boaz's voice? Do you hear that ability? Do you hear all that strength that comes out in him when he says to her, if this nearer kinsman will not redeem you, I will do it myself. So Boaz goes to talk to this other nearer kinsman. 
And he says to him, there is an inheritance that is a relative of ours. He has passed away, and along with that inheritance comes a wife. And the kinsman says this, and this is what you and I must hear. In verse 6, he said, then I can't redeem. He did not say, I won't redeem. He said, I can't redeem, because this would endanger my own estate. You redeem. I can't do it. Well, what a wonderful picture of you and me and Jesus in the law because we come to Jesus and we say, can you redeem me? And he says, I will. But if you can be perfect, if, if your nearer kinsman can redeem you, then that's fine. But we stand before the law and the law says, I'm sorry, I can't because see, here's the thing. The law cannot just say, oh, come on into heaven when we're flawed people because it wouldn't be the law anymore. Like this man said, if I redeemed you, it would wreck my own estate. When you get to Romans chapter 8, you hear what we just read in Ruth. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law could be fully satisfied in us. See, God doesn't let us into heaven by sweeping our sin under the rug. Basically, here's what happened. Jesus Christ came into our world. God and human at the same time ran the table, never did anything wrong. He was perfect with the law. But then after living a perfect life, he lay on a cross. And according to the Bible, he became sin for us so that God could punish your sin and my sin in the person of Christ. And that way, God could satisfy the requirements of the law and set us free. I love Romans 3. Every once in a while, I'll just go read it just to make sure it's still in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, because I want to tell you, as a, as a sinner, as somebody who deserves to go to hell, which I'll hold both hands up on that, I just, I just go read it to make sure this is still in the Bible, okay? You want to read it with me? But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. Did you just read what I read? God now has made a way to make us right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. For all of us who grew up in religion with that misunderstanding that the law was giving to redeem us, let's kick that out the window. That is not why God gave the law. He knew from the very beginning that law would be good. It would help us be healthy and have order and security, but it couldn't fix what was broken in us. Let me keep reading. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. You say, Mark, you just don't realize how bad I've been. I, don't, I think I just read it's true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. You say, well, I think I'm pretty good and I don't need it. It says it's true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. You know, there are blue-collar hell raisers, white-collar hell raisers. And no matter who we are, it's true. Why? Verse 23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short, fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. If you were to read that in Greek, you would find that expression, undeserved kindness, comes from a single word, Greek word, charis. You know what that word is usually translated? It's usually translated grace. 
God with grace, God with undeserved kindness. That's what grace is. God with undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Christ as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And that is why... Perhaps the greatest summary verse in the Bible about how to get to heaven is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where the Bible says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. Well, as we close, let's go back to the story. Because when, when we see Jesus there in the temple and that, that poor woman caught in adultery, clearly the law says stoner. The law says she should go to hell. They asked Jesus, what do you say? And instead of saying something, Jesus did the most remarkable thing. He knelt down and he began to dry in the dirt. Now, the only time I ever did that was when I was a kid playing football, drawing up plays. So I don't know exactly what Jesus did. He's drawing something, writing something. Everybody has an idea about what he wrote. Nobody really knows. And while he was writing, you know, all these teachers of the law, they just kept on. They kept on. They were yelling in his ear, tell us what to do. You tell us what to do. Tell us what to do with this woman. Jesus is writing. Finally, Jesus gets up, and you and I need to get this. They kept demanding an answer, verse 7. So he stood up again, and he said, all right. Do you realize that Jesus never told them that she shouldn't be stoned? He knew what the law was. And they were yelling in his ear, and Jesus said, okay, knock yourself out. Oh, he didn't say that. (laughs) He said, all right. But it was the law that first, the person who started the whole thing was an innocent person. So Jesus said, "Uh, well, go ahead. Um, Just an innocent person here. You throw the first rock. And then he knelt back down, and I, you got to get this, because I hope God kept it on video. I want to see this when I get to heaven. Jesus just riding on the ground. But something began to happen with the crowd. Because instead of yelling in Jesus' ear, it got real quiet. And the Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they begin to walk away. Now, Guys, this is the most important thing I'll say today, and I'm in overtime, so please wait with me, please. Why did they walk away? For all of us who struggle with religion all our lives, we must get this. These are experts on the law. The law had no answer. Jesus has asked a question. Here's a woman. She's guilty. She deserves to be judged. But okay, I need an innocent person to throw the rock. That's the problem that the law can't solve. That's the problem that religion can't solve. Are there sinners? Yes, but let's see if we can find an innocent person to throw the rock, and we can't. The law has no answer for that, and so one by one, the teachers of the law went home, and Jesus still there. And when he looks up, there's nobody there but him and the woman. Hey, has there ever been a moment in your life when there was just nobody there but you and Jesus? In all the noise of your guilt, and all the noise of your shame, in all the noise of the judgment that surrounds your head and the people that are screaming, accusing you of everything, and you accusing yourself, when all those voices are drowned out and you look up and there's just nobody there but you and Jesus. And the question that Jesus asked, here's the thing, 
The only person there who could have thrown the first rock was Jesus, but he was the person who was going to bear her sin. See, if you've gotten the idea that Jesus just said, hey, girl, go on, we all try, we all mess up. If you think that's what happened there, you're dead wrong. Basically, here's what Jesus said. It's on me. It's on me. I've put your adultery on my tab. And the one who could throw the rock was the, the only one who could throw the rock was the one who was going to bear sin. And he said to her, you can go live a new life now. Tradition says her name was Susanna. She went to Europe and spread the gospel. I bet you that's true. I'm asking you a question today. You need, to let, you need to make religion leave the room. You need to make your sense of being good leave the room. You need to make the defensiveness that's been a crust around you. Make that all leave the room. Make, it, make, it, make everything leave until there's nothing there but you and Jesus. And you hear him say, where are your accusers? In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible says, no condemnation for those, no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. You know, here's the thing. Some of us just got it for the first time today. Maybe we come from a religious background. Maybe we've been at New Spring for years, but we've just dialed it in for the first time. We, we understand it. Grace means I can't keep the law, but God has kept it for me. If you're here today and, and you can have that moment with just you and Jesus, I want to pray a prayer, and these are not magic words, but you can pray it with me, and if you mean it from your heart, God will hear your prayer. If you're here today and you're ready like that woman to just say, God, I want to be right with you, and I realize religion and the law can't do it, only Jesus, and I want to commit my life to him. Pray with me. I pray this prayer slowly. The important thing is not the words. It's what you mean in your heart. Ready? Dear Jesus, I'm a lawbreaker. I can't save myself. But I believe you died to pay for my sins. Please forgive me and make me God's child in Jesus' name.